Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're on this podcast to break down the challenging and interesting issues that are in front of employers today. And uh, we are particularly interested in the pandemic as usual, but we're going to go back in time a little bit. We focused on single-payer systems, the idea of Medicare for all. We talked about that a lot last year. Um, but we're going to revisit that now today in the context of the pandemic. Suzanne, people are justifiably uh, so frightened with the pandemic, and you've heard the talk surrounding single-payer systems growing a little bit louder. What are your initial thoughts on this? Well, I agree that people are frightened. Um, many are dissatisfied with the government's response to the pandemic, and many have used that as a political springboard to push for a government-run single-payer health care system. What's interesting is that with all of that going on, with Americans clearly impacted by the pandemic, it doesn't necessarily equate that they're equate to the idea that their views have changed on this subject. Hmm. So the Kaiser Family Foundation um, is is you know is continually polling Americans on a variety of different issues, and they conducted a poll from March 25th through March 30th and found that 69% of Americans favored a government-administered health plan, but only if it was a public option that would compete with private health insurance. So that response hasn't really changed since um, the outbreak of the coronavirus. The key takeaway from that research is that many voters, including Democrats, support some level of government-provided health share, but not as a sole option. So in other words, they like the idea that the government would assist with health care, but they don't want it to be a mandate. Mm -hmm. And so their polling has consistently shown that when you explain Medicare for all, um, if you said that it means that you have to give up your employer-sponsored health coverage, the support for that idea plummets significantly. Right. So we talked about this on prior podcasts, but just this idea of really understanding what we're talking about when we say the words single-payer, Medicare for all, public option, socialized medicine, right. those are all different things. Terms, terminology is key there. Right, right. So um, interesting that uh, maybe public opinion hasn't changed, even though maybe the noise around it has uh, been amped up a little bit. But what else about this pandemic is creating the push for a single-payer system, do you think? Well, because people are losing their jobs, they're obviously losing access to a lot of employer-sponsored coverage. Um, people are getting sick. Um, Businesses are closing, so the idea altogether around free health insurance is really enticing. But we really, instead of having a knee-jerk reaction to that, we want to unpack that a bit more and take a look at government-sponsored healthcare systems. And then we'll also talk a little bit about other ideas about available coverages. Um, But there's a number of different articles out there. If you want to research this topic, there's plenty to read on both sides of the issue. One article in particular that was interesting is written by Michael Tanner at the Cato Institute Senior Fellow. He heads up research in a variety of domestic policies and was 
named by the Congressional Quarterly as one of the nation's five most influential experts on Social Security. So I like to read articles where you have, you know, someone has some cred um, when they're writing about a subject. But, you know, he started out his article by pointing out that the most egregious errors during the pandemic have been really made by the government organizations from the FDA to the CDC to FEMA, while many of the breakthroughs that we've seen, such as the rapid tests, the potential treatments, and possible vaccines have all originated in the private sector. Mm. So the private sector has clearly um, become a more efficient and effective resource than really the government in in its response. Mm -hmm. Um, The FDA is interesting, initially refused to allow private labs to develop tests and it only issued a single emergency authorization to the CDC, whose tests then failed. So those restrictions were lifted in March, and once they were, the private company Abbott Labs took only a few weeks to come up with a coronavirus test that can give positive results in as little as five minutes. And so what we find today is that 85% of all coronavirus tests are being conducted by private labs, and that's because it's a more efficient process. Mm-hmm. You had, just a few months ago, you had Bernie Sanders out there chastising the pharmaceutical industry for its greed. But now we all depend on that industry for coming up with treatments and um, certainly um, all of the various testing to save us from this coronavirus. So while it's frustrating, the FDA uh, didn't have a system in place to rapidly develop and deploy these testing capabilities. The private sector certainly stepped in and has made up that gap. Right. And, uh, you know, it's been, I think, frustrating for a lot of people that there was that gap, right? There was uh, these critical weeks where the governmental response could have made a bigger difference. Um, But speak to a a little bit about the issues that we're hearing with protective gear and with ventilators, because that's been another uh, big point of discussion Right. And, and again, we're talking about the ability of the government to respond, right, to the mm-hmm. pandemic. And so we're looking at how quickly can something um, from the government side step up to the plate rather than the private sector. And that really, um, and overseeing it as something as complex as the healthcare system. But really, as it pertains to like ventilators, for example, or other PPE, there's blame to go around on both sides of the political aisle. I'm going to start first with praise. Um, but there were two different Two presidents that really helped us stockpile, you know, some supplies. Back in 1998, President Bill Clinton read uh, a book by Richard Preston named The Cobra Event. Mm -hmm. Um, And in in that book, there was an unbalanced scientist that unleashed a deadly virus in New York City. And he was so taken back by the implications that he pushed to create a stockpile of medicines and vaccines. And so in October later that year, he signed legislation authorizing $51 to stockpile bioterrorism-related medical supplies. That um, supply is now called the Strategic National Stockpile. And in 2005, there was another book that influenced a president. President George W. Bush read John Barry's account of the 1918 influenza epidemic, the Great Influenza. It's a great and read. It's a great read. And again, he was so struck by the impact of that virus on America that he obtained significantly more stockpile funding from 2005 to 2007. I will say that this stockpile was never envisioned to support PPE needs across the entire country. It was really designed to supplement states after they exhausted their own supply. So I think the way that it's being utilized today was not how it was envisioned originally. Nonetheless, let's just take a look at the ventilators you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, for example, and this just shows you our inefficient government. In 2008, the Bush administration launched an initiative to stockpile ventilators uh, for a pandemic. And then in 2009, the Obama administration contracted with a California company to 
um, by 40,000 ventilators. But in 2014, that company withdrew from the contract without delivering a single ventilator. I mean, you would not see that in the private sector. That is unheard of. And so the government had to start over with a new contractor, and it took another five years for the FDA to sign off on a ventilator design. And so the government did not begin placing an order um, until December of 2019, and that was for an order of 10,000 ventilators, and that was the month that the COVID-19 outbreak began. Mm -hmm. So we lost more than a decade because of government inefficiency. Again, on both sides of the political aisle, that we're not going to make this political, but it just shows you that uh, the government itself is not an efficient way in which um, to handle these pandemic needs. Right. So if you're thinking about these small examples, and then you're thinking about in the context of a single-payer system handing the entire healthcare delivery system over to them, um, how those inefficiencies would be augmented. Uh, but some do continue this argument and say that a government-run system can respond more quickly. Is there any evidence of that? If we look at other countries, is there any evidence of that? You know, there's really there's really not. If the government-run healthcare system was the solution for the pandemic, you would see those other countries faring better than the U.S., and that's mm -hmm. just not the case. In Europe, the government-run systems from Italy to Spain have been every bit as overwhelmed as the U.S., if not more so. And some of those countries have reported higher mortality rates than the U.S., but but if we break it down further, we can look at certain metrics that relate to healthcare. So we'll start with Canada because it's a country that is often pointed to as a model for Medicare for All advocates. Nearly half of Ontario's acute care hospitals were over 100% capacity during the first six months of last year. Roughly a quarter of the province's hospital averaged more than 100% capacity at most times. So clearly there's a shortage of beds. Um, there's no spare capacity for taking on people with the coronavirus. If you even look back to the SARS um, event back in 2003, 2004, Canada had 375 cases of which 44 people died. Here in the U.S., we had 27 cases. No one died. Uh, people in Canada, particularly in Ontario, in the hospitals, were sitting in emergency rooms for up to 16 hours. And so they're spreading the virus and infecting other people during that time. There's plenty written uh, about the hospital bed shortage in Canada. So, um, But if we look more specifically at ICU beds and look at that metrics across other countries as well, the U.S. is in a much better position to absorb a crisis like, uh, like this. According to the National Center for Biotechnology Information, the United States has more ICU beds than any other country that it had studied. We have 20 to 30 intensive care unit beds for every 100,000 people. Again, the most per capita of any country in the world. We have at least 75% more per capita than in the UK. Italy has only two thirds as many as we do. So clearly from an ICU bed perspective, which is really where the fear began with the spread of the pandemic, that our hospitals would not be able to survive in terms of, of handling the capacity. We are in a much better position than in those countries uh, that have socialized medicine. And again, those are per capita numbers. So we're not just having more numbers here because we have more people. Right. This is a per capita comparison. Yes, and, and if you just look at the NHS, again, that's in Britain, they have had a problem historically with handling outbreaks of the flu. During the 2018-2019 flu season in Britain, one out of four patients waited more than four hours in an emergency room, and 11% of ambulances transporting patients were forced to wait outside the hospital for 30 minutes or longer. 
Um, in the UK last year, 4.6 million people were, were on the waiting list for hospital care, the highest number that they've ever recorded. Another concern that you hear uh, when it comes to uh, socialized or nationalized medicine has to do with rationing of care. Um, we've heard this more recently in Italy uh, being a, a problem or a, or a challenge there. So uh, Italy, obviously, another government-run system. Right. It's, it's scary to think that a country would actually choose to, to treat younger individuals over old, elderly, especially as I get older, it's scary. <laughs> it becomes scarier and scarier. But in good times, critical care, you know, is rationalized under socialized medicine. But in a pandemic, it's even more severe. And there's been plenty of reporting in Italy that hospitals have been so overwhelmed that they've been forced to prioritize the young, the otherwise healthy patient over the elderly and infirm. So if you're in that segment, that would be um, terrifying for you if you mm -hmm. think of the U.S. doing the same. Um, and if you so if you think that today's pandemic bolsters the case for socialized medicine, you just ask yourself if you had COVID-19, would you rather be in a hospital in the U.S. or would you rather be in a hospital in Italy? That may the answer to that may be based on your age. But even Joe Biden in a Democratic nominee obviously said during one of the uh, Democratic debates that with all due respect to Medicare for all, you have a single payer system in Italy and it doesn't work there. Right. So even someone prominent on the Democratic side, although there may be others in the Democratic Party going further left, uh, definitely recognize the restrictions and the challenges um, that are difficult to overcome in, in the Medicare for all system. Right. Yeah, and, and you know the U.S. is often criticized for spending more on healthcare than in any other country, and in, in part it's because when you have a single payer system, they can hold down the cost because they have budgets they have to abide by, so they can impose different capital controls in order to limit overall spending, and so um, that can in turn limit the availability of hospital beds and life-saving equipment like ventilators. That's we clearly see that right now in those socialized countries. True, in normal times, it's a legitimate debate on whether we are spending too much here in the U.S., but when it comes to a pandemic, those extra resources can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. If we look at Bernie Sanders and his plan, Medicare for All, um, analysts have said that it would require a 40% reduction in reimbursement to healthcare providers so that he would align uh, most payments to providers along with Medicare payments. And so overall, that would require 40% fewer dollars going into our providers Clearly, that would lead to fewer doctors, nurses, and hospital beds, which would um, have an impact significantly on a pandemic. And what's really galling is that even when you have all of those cuts, so you have fewer hospitals, fewer doctors, fewer, fewer nurses, um, their plan, Sanders' plan, would still cost more than $36 trillion over the next 10 years. When you look at that in light of the stimulus packages that have already been passed, we've had three that have gone through already. We have a fourth one up for $3 trillion, with a T, right. dollars. You've got to step back and say, where is the money coming from? We're already, as a country, going to have this enormous debt related to those stimulus packages. Can we really afford to take on the additional money um, for a Medicare for All system? Right. And we have covered this on past podcasts, the uh, actual tax increases that would have to be associated with that to pay for it, and uh, yeah, the tremendous amount of money that would be spent. These all sort of support the idea that perhaps socialized medicine is not the greatest uh, solution, particularly in a pandemic. The pandemic seems to augment all of those challenges that are already there for a single payer. But we still have, uh, you know, the sensitivities for workers who have lost their jobs, um, not 
feeling like they have access to health care. But is that true? Does being uninsured really mean that you have no options? Because that's how it's presented a lot of times, and certainly it's how people feel, maybe because they're not aware of options. Well, that's true. And, and let's unpack that a bit, because the idea of uninsured in our country does not mean that coverage is unavailable. The U.S. Census Bureau found that an estimated 27 million non-elderly people who were uninsured in 2017, out of those 27 million, 25% of them were eligible for Medicaid or CHIP, and they just didn't sign up. Mm-hmm. 30% were eligible for subsidies, and they didn't enroll. 14% declined employer-sponsored coverage. So there were options. Um, people ch- made the decision that they didn't want to spend the money for insurance, and that just really can't happen. There are options out there. But if we look today, we, you know, what does the picture look like going forward? I think that some changes will be made. We know that with the House passed the HEROES Act, that will certainly be changed in the Senate, although it may preserve some of uh, the different provisions. One provision in the HEROES Act included 100% COBRA subsidies for those who lost coverage so that they could remain on the employer-sponsored coverage. That clearly would help close that gap. Many are also receiving unemployment. And in fact, many are receiving more money through unemployment than they did through their employer. So the unemployment income coming in, they can purchase coverage in the marketplace. Another option um, under the Trump administration are these short-term limited duration plans. I'm not saying that I'm a huge proponent Mm -hmm. of these. They obviously have limitations, but they provide an option for someone who wants only limited coverage. Um, They obviously don't have to provide coverage for those 10 essential benefits, which is why they can keep their rates down significantly. And there's there's not a one-size-fits-all with these short-term limited duration plans. If you go in each state, they have distinct benefits, they have different exclusions, they have varying patient cost-sharing. So the idea was to have a more robust selection for people to be able to choose what level of coverage that they wanted. Um, Many of them would certainly uh, extend to covering COVID-19 treatment, at least to some respects. So when we talk about the uninsured, uh, we have to look at there are um, avenues for having coverage. People have to make the decision to put some skin in the game in order to have that coverage. And a lot of those options are subsidized. You mentioned Medicaid, CHIP, um, subsidies through the exchanges, and employer coverage employers contribute towards the cost in most instances as well. Right. So today's pandemic is not evidence of the need for socialized medicine. If anything, it proves that the private system can react better than a government-run system. And the U.S. isn't better prepared than many of the other countries that we look at today that have government-run systems. So even though we have some who are politically engaged think that the pandemic will lead us to rethink how our healthcare system works and be able to push more Americans toward that idea of Medicare for all, if you look at the polls, as we mentioned, through Kaiser Family Foundation, um, we find that people really find evidence to support the views that they already have, and most don't want a government-run mandated system. And so it hasn't seemed to shift Americans' thinking in this way. Right. And we covered in past podcasts this idea that of how many people are really happy. It's a very high percentage, over 85%, that are happy with employer-sponsored coverage. Um, just working through some of the kinks for those that are maybe have a little bit more challenge in accessing health care, as we talked about. So thank you so much, Suzanne. This was a great walkthrough of uh, pandemic and uh, single payer, and we'll continue to monitor these as both develop. Uh, But as we like to say on the podcast... That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. 